when we pick things up in 2 Kings 2, the, the narrative really continues from, uh, when we pick things up in 2 Kings, the narrative continues from 1 Kings. And what we see is that there is this, this conflict between the kings of Israel and in some, at some points Judah and the prophets of God. And, and this, this doesn't bode well for the way that things are going. The Lord is mercifully sending these prophets and rather than respond to the prophets and, and trust the Lord and, and get on board with the Lord's program, the kings are acting as though they're going to overcome the prophets and, and they're opposing the prophets and, and ultimately to overcome the prophets is to overcome the Lord and this is not going to happen. And so then, then there's this bizarre uh, scene where where the king, in, in 2 Kings 1, the king who's resisting the prophet of God nevertheless wants help from God. And he's, so he's, re, he's, he's rebelling against God's law. He is rejecting God's program and putting in place of it his own program. And then his child gets sick and he, and he wants the Lord to help him achieve his program and his own personal kingdom at the expense of the Lord's kingdom. This is bizarre. It, it really almost is reminiscent of the way that we act sometimes when we, when we reject the Lord's word and we reject the Lord's purpose in our lives and then, and then we want the Lord to give us a new car to, to further our program or give us a better house or more money. It's, it, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's absurd. Um, and and uh, uh, the, the prophet's response, Elijah's response, again and again, is to ask, is it because there's no God in Israel that, that you're not relying upon him? And, and this is the way that the kings are conducting them, themselves, as though there's no God. And that question, where, uh, where's the God of Elijah, this, this echoes through chapter 1, uh, verse 3, is because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron. Verse 6, is it because there's no God in Israel? And then Verse 16 of 2 Kings 1 is because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word. And then when Elijah is taken up to heaven, uh, Elisha says in 2 Kings 2, 14, where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And then um, uh, we get this narrative of uh, the spirit of Elijah resting on Elisha, Elisha succeeding Elijah. And uh, the narrative continues, and eventually, um, they're, they're, Elijah and Elisha have both done these wonders. E Elisha is multiplying the widow's oil, and and then he um, he goes to the Shunammite woman, and and she's barren, and and the and the Lord promises through Elisha's ministry that she's going to have a child. And then the child dies, and Elisha raises him from the dead. And, and what we're seeing, what we're being shown through these narratives is that everything Israel seeks by its own power, whether it be provision or posterity or, or, or life, everything that Israel seeks by its own power in its own way, Yahweh is able to provide. And Yahweh provides this by means of, of an embrace of the word of the prophets, by means of an embrace of the law of, of Moses. So it's as though 
the, the, the narrator is showing us, as, as these stories are worked out, he's showing us the path of life is not where you think it is. In other words, you're not going to get the good life by pursuing it the way that you think you're going to, to need to go to get to the good life. If you want to get to the good life, if you want to get what people try to attain for themselves when they go after the good life, the way to get it is to heed the prophets and obey the law of Moses. This is what the narrator is, is showing us. And um, the, the narrative goes on this way. And, and, and th there are these very interesting accounts here in 2 Kings 4 and 5 of these people who, who seem to be outside Israel, and yet they receive the blessing of the prophetic word. So there's the Shunammite woman who, who has this son who's raised from the dead. And then there's this, this Syrian general in 2 Kings 5 named Naaman who's cleansed of his leprosy. And, and it's as though... It's as though the, the, uh, the nations round about are enjoying the goodness of Yahweh while Israel has forsaken the Lord and is pursuing some other kind of, of path. Um, as, as, as these stories unfold, the, the narrator is showing God's justice and he's showing that... Um, that re Regardless of what the odds may be against Israel, the Lord is mighty to save. So we see this, for instance, in 2 Kings chapter 6. This is just a magnificent story that, is, that, that we'll take the time to read. And so let's pick this up in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8 and following. We read here, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, this is the prophet Elisha, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that, that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he, Elisha, used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So this happens a number of times. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's the leak or who's the spy? Who, who in our inner circle is representing the king of Israel because somebody is telling the king of Israel where we're going to be and when we're going to be there? Verse 12, And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So this looks bad for Elisha, doesn't it? Here the, the Syrian king has sent a great army and horses and chariots and they've surrounded the city. So Elisha's trapped. He's trapped in the city. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Elisha said to the servant, 
do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now let's take, take stock of this narrative here. Elisha's boldness and confidence is not foolhardy and, and it's not ungrounded. Elisha's confidence in this moment when he's surrounded by the Syrian army with its horses and chariots, his confidence at this moment comes from the fact that he has access to information that nobody else has access to. He has access to realities that are true, that are real, even though they're unseen. Elisha's eyes are opened to the way things really are even though they can't be perceived by normal human sight. Verse 18 of 2 Kings 6, And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to Yahweh and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. He takes them right into the capital of the king of Israel. Verse 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Yahweh, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So Yahweh opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? So Elisha leads this, this army right into the city, and now they're trapped. Now they're surrounded by the army of Israel. And, and the king of Israel wants to know from Elisha, should he strike them down? And he answered in verse 22, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk... He sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Now, what we're shown here is what is possible with Yahweh. And, and the, the reader of this narrative sees that if we'll trust the Lord, He's mighty to save. He can deliver. It's like what Jonathan said when he went out to battle. Uh, against the Philistines, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It's like what David said when he went out to battle against Goliath. The battle belongs to the Lord. If we'll trust in the Lord, He will deliver us because there are real things at work like these chariots of fire and these more numerous hosts of Yahweh that are guarding and protecting His people and they're a, that are able to strike the hosts of the Syrians with blindness. But in order to see these things, you have to believe God's Word. You have to heed the prophets of Israel. Well, what, what we see in these narratives is that the kings of Israel, they don't believe God's Word and they don't, they don't believe in these realities. They believe only in what they can see. And so, um, 
the, the, the narrator of, of Kings is arguing for faith. He's arguing that people trust in the Lord, even against what's apparent to the, the, the sight of their eyes. Uh, there's, there's this other, there are these other uh, wonderful narratives of the way that the Lord uh, delivers Israel. But what I want to do is pass over now to um, um, what we see under um, under uh, Ahaz in Second Kings chapter sixteen. Now Ahaz, you'll recall, is the king that Isaiah addresses in. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, you remember, and he, and, he, and he offers a sign to Ahaz, and Ahaz refuses to test the Lord, and so as a re result of his refusal to test the Lord, um, the Lord denounces his, his smokescreen, his veil of piety. He's, he's saying he refuses to test the Lord. Really, it's unbelief, and, and, and uh, Isaiah denounces that, and then Isaiah gives the sign of Emmanuel. And in 2 Kings 16, we see what's, what else is going on with Ahaz. And this is symptomatic of what's going on in Israel at large. So in 2 Kings 16, we pick this up. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, that's the king up in the north, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh his God, as his father David had done. Now, let, let's just pause and make some observations about this. The author of Kings has an absolute standard. And that absolute standard he derives from Deuteronomy. And his absolute standard is also informed by the pattern of David. So the question for the author of Kings is not... How much pressure was Ahaz under? It's not, can we understand the, the forces and the influences at work in Ahaz's life? No. For the author of Kings, the question is very simple. Did he or did he not do what was commanded by the Lord in the book of Deuteronomy? Did he or did he not follow the example set by David? The author of Kings is not interested in Ahaz's background, or his father, or his mother, or his teachers, or how his educational uh, worldview was shaped so that the dominant influences in his thinking were not the law of Moses, but the actual social and political and economic realities in Israel. And if you look at it from that perspective, well, you can understand what Ahaz is doing and what's motive. No, that's not the question. The question is, did he obey Moses? because Moses sets the standard. The author of Kings is operating from an absolute perspective. Now, if you're, if you're a person that rejects the idea of inspiration and, and, and inerrancy, then you might look at this and you might say, well, this is just, it's just one way to look at the situation. It's, it's one perspective on uh, Ahaz's reign, and, and it's obviously a very slanted perspective, slanted negatively. But if you're a person that believes that God has revealed himself in 
everything from the law of Moses to these narratives of Second Kings. If you're a person that believes that God has superintended these things and inspired them by the Holy Spirit so that they are without error and teaching the truth, well, then, then this is the fact. Ahaz did not do what was right, and he did not uh, follow David. But, verse 3, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. That means rather than following David and Moses, Ahaz is following those wicked kings up in the north who have invented their own religion, and look what they've done. They've set themselves up as the standard. So the first thing Jeroboam does implicitly, this, the narrative doesn't say, state this, but, but in order for Jeroboam to create his own religion with his own priests and his own feasts and his own images in the form of these calves and then, and then name those calves the gods of Israel who brought them up out of Egypt, the first thing Jeroboam has done is rejected the law of Yahweh. That's what he's done. And, and if, I submit to you that if you do this, if you reject the Bible, you're going to replace the Bible with some other authoritative standard. Whether that authoritative standard is, well, if we look at the social and economic and political forces at work, we can understand why people commit all kinds of evil and atrocity and wickedness and, 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 and do all kinds of, of uh, horrible things on the earth. Well, well then you're going to wind up justifying sin. But, but if, if, if your ethical standard... Um, is the law of God, then you're going to have these categories of, of right and wrong, and, and it's going to be very simple to, to evaluate a king like Ahaz. Uh, I think that many people in our day, implicitly, what they have is, is a standard that goes like this. The only, the only thing that is truly wicked is to act like you know what the absolute standard is. And the ironic thing is that they've got their own absolute standard, and, and so that they themselves, by their own definition, are truly and genuinely wicked because they're, they're, they're saying that basically everybody is right except the people with the absolute standard, which, by the way, makes us wrong, too, because we've got an absolute standard. And, and yet they, they're supposed to, it, it's, 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 it's evidence of the way that God has ironically structured the universe so that if, if you're in line with his word, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be logical. You're going to be... Uh, moral, you're, you're going to be uh, uh, consistent with your own principles if you line up with His Word. Not that you're sinless. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that your thinking is going to be rational. And, and, and if you reject God's Word, if you, if you set aside the fear of God and, and then exalt some other standard, all manner of irrationality and inconsistency and logical fallacy is going to ensue. It's just the way God has set the world up. So these people who think that they are so intelligent and, and smarter than to believe in the things that are revealed in the Bible, you, you just take a, a, a careful look at their lives and at their premises and at their arguments and it's, it's all illogical and inconsistent and it's often immoral and wicked and, and, and uh, they're reaping what they sow. And that's what we see in Ahaz. He, he doesn't do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. He walks in the way of the kings of Israel. Look at verse 3. He even burned his son as an offering. Now, as, uh, now this may sound insane, what I'm about, about to say. But there is 
a moral universe uh, in which it makes sense to take your own child, start a fire, and put your child on that fire. There's a moral universe in which that makes sense. It, and, and so you, you could say Ahaz is doing what's morally right. If you believe something like there are these gods who have to be propitiated, and the, and the way to propitiate these gods is to burn our children. This is really not that far from the moral universe in which it's right to, say, have an abortion. There are moral universes in which that's what makes sense. If your highest goal is to preserve your own convenience, and, and I'm not exaggerating, I mean, there, there, there are, I've read newspaper stories about women who chose to have abortions because if they had that child, they know that it means that, that, it, that their financial situation would be changed so that they would have to buy the generic brand of mayonnaise. And they don't want to be generic mayonnaise people. They want to be people who are in a different financial class, who are not burdened financially by children. And so to preserve their own financial standing and status, they would rather have an abortion than bring the child into the world. Well, that's all Ahaz is doing. Ahaz thinks that these gods that need to be propitiated, same gods that provide the financial standing to that woman that has the abortion, Ahaz thinks that these gods that need to be propitiated are going to protect his people and his realm and his reign, and, and, and they're going to defend him against his enemies. And so he would rather have that than preserve the life of the child because because in his world, it is more compelling to believe that those gods really exist and that if I burn this child, they really will protect me. It's more compelling to believe that than it is to believe no matter what. There's Yahweh and he has said this is evil and he will protect those who walk in his ways. So no way am I offering up this child. That's a heinous wickedness to burn this child alive to some God that doesn't exist. This is insanity. Well, it all depends on the moral universe in which you dwell. Uh, make no mistake about it. There are moral universes in our culture. There, there are moral universes in our, at work in our culture that say it would be better to see the, 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 the population of humanity not reproduce. It would be better to see fewer humans, fewer babies, even if we have to, say, uh, have forced abortions for women who get pregnant like they do in China, you know, one child rule. It would be better to have a regulation that says married people can only have uh, a certain number of children. It would be better to have all that than it would be to continue to have all these children who are destroying the environment. This is really being argued in, in our world. And, and, and it's, it's a moral argument. It's an argue, argument about what is morally superior, superior or inferior. And in their religious worldview, it is superior to protect the environment than it is to have babies. Uh, that's, that's the same kind of thing that's going on with Ahaz 
And, and I don't doubt that the author of Kings understands these realities and understands the nuances of Ahaz's arguments and his re religious perspectives and, and the influences on him, but he doesn't have time for he does He's not interested in any of that nuance. He's just stating what Ahaz did. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. That's, that's what Ahaz is doing. And, and so Ahaz probably thinks himself sophisticated. He probably thinks himself cosmopolitan. He probably thinks that he is uh, very, very smooth. And, and very, very adept and, and nuanced, and he probably was a great orator, and, and he's probably uh, widely respected in the culture as a sophisticated and urbane and, and wise king, but he's wicked. At the end of the day, he's just wicked, and, and there are moral forces and religious forces at work in him that are resulting in, in these heinous immoralities and these horrible inconsistencies. Verse 5, Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. This is a situation very similar to the one described in Isaiah chapter 7. So uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Remaliah, king of Israel, have gotten together. And notice that Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, he's a Jew. He does, he's a descendant of Abraham. And the Jewish descendant of Abraham has now gone into a treaty with this Gentile king of Syria against the other Jewish king. And, and so what you have is not Israel seeking to rule over the nations round about and subdue it and, and, and cause the glory of Yahweh to cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. What you have is uh, one part of Israel aligning itself with the Gentiles against another part of Israel. It's, it's an amazing rejection of and departure from God's purpose for the nation. Verse 6, At that time Rezin the king of Syria recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath where they dwell to this day. Verse 7, Now, now the narrator doesn't say for us, uh, Ahaz decided not to trust the Lord in this circumstance. He doesn't, he doesn't need to say that. He just records what Ahaz does. Rather than call out to Yahweh for help, rather than trust in the Lord in this circumstance, what Ahaz does is in verse 7, he sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So uh, Judah is here. Mediterranean Sea is kind of over that way. The king... Israel is just north of Judah, and then north of, of Israel is Syria, and then over here to the, to the east is Assyria. And so what Ahaz does from down here in Judah is he sends to Assyria to come help him against Israel and Syria. So Ahaz sends messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. I'm not, the descend, I'm not the son of Yahweh. I mean, this is, this is like a rejection of the promises to David. He shall be my son and I shall be a father to him. I am, I'm your servant because you can protect me. 
and, and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Verse 8, Ahaz took the silver and gold that was in the house of Yahweh. That, that stuff to be used in the worship of the Lord. And, and instead of uh, dedicating that stuff to the Lord, he gives it to the king of Assyria. He took the silver and gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. So Ahaz gets what he wants. Damascus is the king of Assyria. So you've got Judah, Israel, then Syria. Damascus is up there. It's the capital of Syria. Tiglath-Pileser comes over. He takes Syria, Damascus, kills Rezin, who is the king of Syria. And uh, king, has, king Ahaz goes up to meet him in Damascus in verse 10. And he saw the altar that was in Damascus. Apparently, this is an altar that Tiglath-Pileser has set up there in Damascus. And apparently, this is part of the treaty, part of the arrangement. Uh, we, we deliver you, you're going to worship our gods. So we read there in verse 10, King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest down in Jerusalem a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar. And then down in verse 14, the bronze altar that was before Yahweh, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of Yahweh, and put it on the north side of his altar. So this altar that Yahweh has commanded, we, we don't need this anymore. He can't deliver us. We're going to use this altar that, that's modeled after the altar of the king of Assyria because he can deliver us, and we're going to worship his gods and his way. Well, we know where this is going. This is going toward exile. And so in, in uh, 2 Kings 17, we read of the fall of the northern kingdom. 2 Kings 17, 6. And, and Ahaz is, prof, is uh, reigning in the 700s B.C. The northern kingdom falls in 721 B.C. And we read in 2 Kings 17, 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And, and in what, what follows uh, is, is an account of the way that Assyria took out the... So you've got Judah, the northern kingdom, and then Syria, and then Assyria is over here. Assyria has come over. They've taken out the, uh, Assyria, and then they take out the northern kingdom. And Judah's down here, and they're going to threaten Judah, but they're not going to take it yet. So they take out the northern kingdom. They take the people away. They exile them. And then they resettle that area with a bunch of pagans, a bunch of Gentiles. And, uh, and then Hezekiah reigns in the south in Judah. And, and he's really a contrast with um, Ahaz. And he trusts the Lord, even though Ahaz, um, or he, in, in contrast with Ahaz, Hezekiah trusts the Lord. Um, and, and Isaiah ministers to Hezekiah. And the narrative goes on. And I, I just want to skip on over now to Manasseh in 2 Kings 21. And Manasseh is wicked. Uh, Manasseh, this is remarkable, is the son of the righteous Hezekiah. So you've got this good king Hezekiah whose son, Manasseh, is horrible. And Manasseh leads the people astray. Uh, in Second in, in Kings 21, uh, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom Yahweh destroyed before the people of Israel. 
and his idolatry is denounced, and, and it, it seems that Manasseh had, had tried to expunge the law of Yahweh from the nation of Israel. And the, re the reason I say this is because when Josiah becomes king, they find the law in the temple. And so apparently someone, probably some righteous uh, priest, uh, as Manasseh is pursuing this program of, of getting rid of the Torah, the Bible, some righteous priest stashes a copy so that when Josiah comes to power in, in 2 Kings 22, we read, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Josiah becomes king in 640 B.C. And he reigns for 31 years, so he reigns down to 609 B.C. And he did what was right uh, in, in, in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or the left. And, he, and he, he wants to repair the temple, so they send people up. And down in 2 Kings 22, verse 8, Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the Torah, the law, in the house of Yahweh. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And this happens in the 18th year of King Josiah. Uh, 2 Kings 22, verse 3. So the 18th year of Josiah would be 622 B.C. So Josiah comes to power in 640. And in the 13th year, let me just check that, Jeremiah, I think, I think it says in the 13th year of, Jeremiah, of, of Josiah, Jeremiah began to prophesy. So, so let's just put these things together. Um... um Jeremiah get, begins to prophesy, yeah, in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, Jeremiah 1-2. So Jeremiah starts to prophesy in 627 B.C. And then the law is found in 622 B.C. So Jeremiah is ministering for five years or so, and then they find the Torah in the temple. By the way, Jeremiah's father was Hilkiah, maybe the same Hilkiah that found the law. And, and I, if you say... Well, what's Jeremiah talking about? Well, I think Jeremiah is probably getting revelations from the Lord, but I think it's probably also the case that even though they don't have a written copy of the Torah, perhaps Hilkiah has it memorized and he's been teaching it to Jeremiah so that Jeremiah has it memorized also. And so they're passing on this, this memorized law and, um, and then they find an actually actual copy. And, and this, this is very exciting because the king... Uh, responds to the actual copy, and, and he begins to pursue reform, and, and, and it's marvelous what begins to happen. So Jeremiah starts prophesying in 627, they find the law in 622, and revival breaks out. Josiah starts pursuing the reform, and, and for uh, 12 years or so, 12, 13 years, things are great. Things are magnificent. Josiah is a righteous king, and, and it's looking really good for Israel. But it's also, uh, there, there, there's trouble on the horizon. And, and to see this trouble begin to brew, we, we need to know what's happening in, in, the, in, the, in the wider world. And, and so um, uh, we've, we've, we've seen this alliance that Ahaz made with Assyria. And Assyria, if you, if you can envision the, uh, the Tigris River 
and the Euphrates River, as my two fingers here. Uh, Babylon is up here on the Euphrates. I'm, I'm sorry, Assyria, the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, is up there on the Euphrates, and Babylon is down here on uh, the, the Tigris. And um, in 612 B.C., Babylon takes out Nineveh. They take down the Assyrians, and the Assyrians, that what they do is they move west, and they move their capital to Haran, which is actually the place that Abraham sojourned when he came up from Ur of the Chaldees on his way to the land of Canaan, which would be kind of over here on this map that we're constructing out of midair. So the Assyrians, they move their capital from Nineveh, once Babylon takes it, over to Haran. Shortly thereafter, the Babylonians defeated them in Haran also. So they move yet further west, and they, they encamp at Carchemish. And the Babylonians are still in hot pursuit of them. Meanwhile, uh, over here, the, the, the Assyrians are over here at Carchemish, and um, you've got the, the northern kingdom, which, been, which has been resettled by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom of Israel, then you've got Judah, and then down here is Egypt. And, and you can just imagine the coast of the, the Mediterranean Sea here and the Nile River going down, and then Egypt's down here. And Assyria is in league with Egypt, and so they appeal for help from Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh is going to make his way up to, to help his Assyrian uh, allies. And um, Josiah has an alliance working with Babylon. So the Assyrians are at Carchemish. Josiah is between Pharaoh and Assyria. And evidently, the Babylonian overlord uh, calls Josiah to keep the, um, the, the, the Egyptians from getting up there to help the Assyrians against Babylon. And so in 609 B.C., uh, Josiah goes out to battle against Pharaoh Necho, and he succeeds. He delay, delays the Egyptians uh, at the cost of his life. He dies in battle. And the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians at the Battle of Carchemish, and, and they take over in 609 B.C. Um, so let's read this account here of, of Josiah uh, dying in battle. And we'll pick this up in, in 2 Kings chapter 23. And um, we're reading about all these wonderful things that Josiah is doing in verse 24. And then we read in verse 25, Before him there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul. This sounds like Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind. And, and here uh, Josiah loves the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the Torah of Mo Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So in some ways, Josiah is presented here as the greatest king that Israel has yet seen, greater than all who were before him or after him. Still, verse 26, now what we're getting is a very theological interpretation of the death of Josiah. So, so the author of Kings I've just gone into this sort of military and political history of what's going on at this time. The author of Kings is not interested in any of that. The author of Kings is interested in Yahweh's anger against Israel because of Israel's sin in breaking the covenant. So he says in verse 26, I'm interested in that stuff too. I just, just want to show you the broader picture to establish what the author of Kings is doing. Verse 26, still Yahweh did not turn from the burning of his great wrath 
by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And Yahweh said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. So what's about to be recounted, Josiah's death in battle, is explained because of the sin of Manasseh and Yahweh's intention to destroy Jerusalem and send the people into exile. So verse 28, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, came, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king, excuse me, in his father's place. And then, and then it goes on about uh, uh, Jehoahaz and, and eventually um, uh, the narrative continues. And, and in chapter 24, verse 10, we see that, that uh, Jerusalem is captured. And then in chapter 25, we read more about the, the capture of Jerusalem. And, um, and this is all Yahweh's justice against the sin of Israel. So let's look over at 2 Kings chapter 25 and just read through this narrative. Uh, beginning in verse 1, And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem to lay siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe that the, in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. So here the, the people of the city are besieged there within the walls of the city and a breach is made in the wall and the army flees. The army abandons the people. This is what you get if you abandon the Lord. If you abandon the Lord, what you get is cowardice and deceit and intrigue and self-protection, self-serving, self-seeking wickedness. Verse 6, Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. So the king, like a coward, he flees from his people and they capture him. The last sight he sees is the execution of his sons, and then they put out his eyes and they carry him off to Babylon. And then in verse 8, In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of Yahweh and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. So they, they burn the temple. And this is Yahweh's fierce anger, his, 
his judgment against the wickedness of his people. And the severity of this justice points us to the seriousness with which God takes himself. God is concerned for his own glory, and he wants the people, his people Israel, to spread his glory over the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. But that's not what Israel's interested in. Israel's interested in themselves. And so in judgment, Yahweh destroys them. The narrative goes on, and we read down in verse 20 of 2 Kings 25, And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And then the Babylonians appoint a, a, a governor, and that governor is murdered. And then um, uh, the people who, who remain, out of fear for what they've done uh, to, the, to the Babylonian governor, uh, they flee to Israel, I mean, uh, to Egypt. And, and so it's as though the exodus has been reversed. And, and what they do is they, they, they kidnap, if, essentially, the prophet Jeremiah, and they, and they take him down to Egypt with them. And it's as though, it's as though the exodus from Egypt has been reversed as, as uh, in, in, a, in a theological sense, creation has been undone with the destruction of the temple and with the devastation of the land and the removal of uh, the remnant from the land to Babylon and also to, to Egypt. But the, the, the book doesn't close on a, on a, on a, uh, a uh, merely negative note. There's a positive note here. Uh, in, in verses 27 and following, where there, there's this inexplicable kindness shown to the king of, of Judah in exile. So in, in 2 Kings 25, 27, we read, In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, this is 561 B.C., and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. Now, I just want to observe here that uh, we know it's not made explicit in the book of Daniel, but we know that at this time, Daniel is serving the kings of Babylon. This guy, evil Merodach, is not mentioned in the book of Daniel, but, but the same time period is treated by the book of Daniel. And Daniel is highly placed in the Babylonian court from, from the time of Nebuchadnezzar when he's taken into exile, and he's very soon exalted over all the wise men of Babylon down to the time when Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians in 539 B.C., at which point Daniel is exalted in the court of, of the king of, of the Medo-Persian alliance. So the narrative doesn't tell us here that, that maybe Daniel had a part to play in uh, the kindness shown to the king of Israel, but, but it's, it's, 
it's maybe suggested by the mere fact that Daniel is highly placed in Babylon at this time. Verse uh, 30, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs, as long as he needs, as long as he lived. So there's this remarkable shine, kindness shown to the king of, of Judah in exile in Babylon. And I would suggest that, that perhaps Daniel had a part in that. And then uh, this is maybe uh, suggesting, hinting that more kindness is yet to come, that all is not lost for the people of Israel and, and Judah and for the line of David, that, that, that God is going to show yet more kindness to them and, and He's going to show them yet more favor from their, their Gentile captors. And that's exactly what we see once um, Cyrus receives the kingdom uh, from Babylon, once he conquers Babylon and, and takes over in 539 B.C., the first thing that he does is issue a decree that that all the exiles from Judah can return to their land and, and rebuild the temple. And, and I think that, again, the text doesn't tell us that Daniel influenced Cyrus to do that, but there he is, Daniel. He's one of the, the uh, three rulers in uh, the Medo-Persian realm. He's one of the, the, the three presidents who are over 120 satraps of the, of the empire. So, uh, the... At, in the midst of all this sadness, there's a glimmer of hope shown to the king of Israel that, that points forward to their future and to a return from this exile. And that return has been prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy and prayed for by Solomon in 1 Kings 8 at the dedication of the temple. And when we come back um, next time and, and look at these narratives again, we will see what takes place uh, once once that return uh, begins to take place. Now, let me say a word about the, before we conclude, let me say a word about the order of the books in our English Bibles versus the order in the Hebrew Bibles. Uh, if you're looking at an English translation of the Old Testament, unless it's like the JPS Tanakh, which is, the, the word Tanakh comes from Torah, Nevi'im, and Kituvim, and Torah is law, Nevi'im is prophets, and Kituvim is writings. If you're not looking at the Tanakh, the Jewish Publication Society's translation of the Old Testament, you're going to have First uh, Chronicles right after Second Kings. If you're looking at the Tanakh, though, what comes right after Second Kings is Isaiah. And it goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. And then, and then after Isaiah through the 12, you get the writings, which, which uh, begin with Psalms and end with Chronicles. And, and that's where Daniel is, and that's where the Psalms are, and Proverbs, and Job, and the rest. And I think that that's an arrangement that is instructive because what you read in Isaiah through the 12 can, can really be boiled down to this. We've broken the covenant. We're sinful. God is just. God made these promises of, of, of blessing for keeping the covenant, and, and, he, and He made these promises that He would curse us if we broke the covenant, and the curses basically are, are, are going to result in exile. And so the prophets, Isaiah through the 12, are basically saying, we're sinners, God is just, we're going we're gonna to experience the curses of the covenant and go into exile. But after exile, there's this glorious eschatological future that awaits us. God is going to restore us to the land. And so 
if, if we were to keep reading from 2 Kings into the prophets, meaning Isaiah through the 12, we would be hearing all these promises of restoration. And all those promises of restoration would then be followed by these books that are written after there's been a partial realization of the restoration and the people are back in the land, namely books like Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. Th those books, um, in, in, their canonical, in their placement in the Tanakh, they come after the prophets. And, and after the prophets, it's, it's apparent that these books are written after exile. These books are written once the community has been restored. And, and that's going to create interpretive questions that those books actually address. And, and I think that's a little harder to see if you just go straight from 2 Kings into 1 Chronicles because you don't have in between all these promises about the future restoration that you then read First and Second Chronicles and Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther in light of. So when we come back next time, uh, as we proceed into First, First Chronicles, we're, we're going to keep it before us, this idea that First Chronicles is written after the restoration. And, and you could get to this idea from Chronicles itself, itself if you pay careful attention to the genealogy and you see the way that the genealogy actually takes you all the way uh, down to the, t to the time of the, the exilic community. So, so before uh, we get into uh, the, the, the account of Saul and David in 1 Chronicles 10 and 11, you actually get the genealogy of the returned exiles in chapter 9, and that tells you that, that this book had to have been written after uh, the exile and at least a partial return. And that needs to be borne in mind. It needs to be kept in view as we read First and Second Chronicles. And also, I think it's helpful to keep in mind the, the promises of restoration that you see in Isaiah through Malachi, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. You need to keep in mind those promises of, rest, of restoration as you read First and Second Chronicles because those promises inform what we read when we come to First and Second Chronicles. And with that, with that sort of preview of where we're going, we will conclude for the day. And I wish you blessings on your continued study and pray that God will use these uh, thoughts and considerations about His Word to equip you to be a, a, a good servant of Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you.